Luke 16:19 can be found on page 741 in your pew Bibles. Um, or, of course, you can bring up any other devices that you have. Again, our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg of you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. Nice to see all of you again. Uh, I just got back to Boston a couple of days ago and uh, still getting adjusted to East Coast time. Uh, coming here, it's also just a little weird um, seeing a group of Asians and hearing perfect English come out of your mouth. Um, but I do want to thank um, Pastor Stephen for preaching uh, three weeks ago and Jason and Ella for speaking the last couple Sundays. It worked out very well that while I was overseas, Jason and Ella were here and able to cover some of the preaching duties for me. I think they have uh, returned home already, uh, just as I have returned home here. Um, for the trip, for our trip uh, this year, I would say it was a bit more difficult uh, than in previous summers, but uh, you'll hear a little more when we schedule someone to come up and share during an offertory slot. Uh, but for now, we want to continue on our sermon series on the parables, and as we we're going to come today to what many Bible commentators and scholars call the most frightening and disturbing of all Jesus' parables. As you listen in to Emily read the parable, hopefully you get a sense of why this is such. This parable presents truths that make people feel very uncomfortable, and it touch, touches on topics that most people don't want to talk about. But I think it's very important that we discuss them. Um, since I just got back, I didn't have a chance to put a sermon outline in the bulletin. I apologize for that, but if you want to take notes and follow along, you can do so by following um, the PowerPoint. As I was preparing this message, I, I focused this message along three needs 
the need to know, the need to feel, and the need to tell. And before we get into the sermon points, just let me briefly summarize the parable. So here you have a story of contrast. There are two main characters in the story, a rich man and a poor man. And as described in the story, the rich man was was very rich. He was very, very, very rich. It says in verse 19 that he was dressed in purple and fine linen. And understand back then that purple was a rare and expensive color to wear because of the difficulty in obtaining um, the material that was needed to make that color dye. It was usually reserved for royalties and people who wanted to actually show off their wealth. In addition, it said at the end of verse 19 that he lived in luxury every day. Other versions said more specifically that he feasted sumptuously every day. When I was in Asia, I was listening to someone uh, narrate the story about uh, you know, what life was like in the Forbidden City um, during the time that it was, you know, that during the time that the emperors and empresses lived there. The narrator uh, described one point when uh, one of the empresses would always order three meals a day, which I guess was maybe uncommon back then. But more, more importantly, he said that the cooks and servants for each meal would prepare three to four main dishes and 20 to 30 side dishes for every meal, every day, because this empress ordered um, three meals a day. And, and you may think that it's really extreme, and, and, and it is, but this is similar, maybe not such, to such an extreme, but similar to how this rich man lived. So here you have this person, once again, who was very, very, very rich and lived a life of extravagance. And on the other hand, you have this poor man, Lazarus, who was very poor, very, very, very poor. It says he was laid at the rich man's gate. This verb laid is in a passive form, which means that someone placed him or someone's placed him at this rich man's gate because he himself was physically unable to do so. Probably the hope was that the rich man would see Lazarus and take some pity on him. The poor man was not only paralyzed, but he was physically unattractive, as it says in verse 20, that his body was covered with sores. In verse 21, when it says he longed to eat would fall from the rich man's table, understand that this wasn't referring to crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. Back then, they didn't have napkins, so what they used was pieces of bread. So to clean their hands, to wipe their mouth, they they took a piece of bread and, you know, just kind of wiped their hands with it, wiped their mouth on it, and just throw it under the table. This is what is being referred to as what the poor man longed to eat. He longed to eat this bread full of dirt and germs of the rich man in his guest's hands. Also, when it says in verse 21 that the dogs came and licked his sores, they weren't doing so to comfort him. Understand, too, that these dogs were scavengers and they were looking for nourishment. So they came and licked his sores and Lazarus, unable to move, couldn't do anything about it. So here was this destitute, deformed man who must have looked repulsive to everyone who passed by. And even in death, notice in verse 22 that it says the rich man was died and buried. The rich man was able to have a proper burial, 
as people should. But notice it doesn't say this about the poor man. It just says the beggar died. People this poor abandoned on the streets, they weren't given a proper burial unless someone would claim the body and pay for the funeral. What usually happened is that after a while, when the street cleaner noticed that the person was dead, he would just pick up the body along with the rest of the trash, take it outside the city limits to Gehenna, which was the garbage dump, and just throw it in the pile and, and burn the body along with the rest of the trash. So we see you know, here the extreme contrast between the life of the rich man and even his death and the life of Lazarus and his death. The contrasts are, are obvious, but everything changes in the afterlife. The roles were totally reversed. And this leads to my first point, which is the need to know. The need to know. Let's see if I can get this to work. Yes, the need to know. In verse 23, after the rich man died and was buried, Scripture says the rich man found himself in hell. So what we need to know, not working Can you advance the slide, please? What we need to know is the reality of hell. Well, I was away. I happened to just just have an opportunity to meet up with a cousin whom I haven't seen, I think, in about 20 years, uh, because we've always been geographically, you know, pretty far apart. He professes to be a Christian, and, and he's quite knowledgeable about Christian doctrine. But I would say he's, he's pretty far from practicing Christianity. But while we were talking, you know, we were having a meal together, we were talking, and out of the blue, he asked, he goes, do you ever preach from Revelation? And I was a bit confused why he would ask this question, but I told him, oh yeah, you know, our church, we just preached a sermon series on the whole book of Revelation last year, and uh, I preached some messages from there. And after answering this question, he further explained that he asked this question because growing up in church, He doesn't recall ever hearing a message from the book of Revelation, nor did he say he ever heard a talk about hell. So I confirmed to him that our church does indeed, you know, preach from Revelation, and knowing that I was going to preach this sermon on this Sunday, I said, and we're going to talk on hell pretty soon. But to his point, you know, it's a topic that many people, many preachers don't like to talk about. It makes people feel uncomfortable in a time when most churchgoers want to walk away from a service feeling encouraged. This isn't a subject that, you know, will likely do so. And the focus nowadays is so much on God's grace and love that seems to take away from that, although I hope to show you in a few minutes why this isn't necessarily such. But the topic is mostly sidestepped. And if we want to stay true to scripture, we can't follow the majority who would sidestep this issue. In the Bible, do you know who the person was that spoke the most on hell? It's the person we know is the Prince of Peace, the one who James writes about as being the God of all compassion and mercy. It's Jesus. Jesus was the one who gave us the most detailed biblical, or 
detailed, vivid descriptions of what hell was like. He himself described hell as a place of suffering and torment. He is the one who tells us that it is a place of condemnation. In this parable, he teaches that it's a place of permanence. So if Jesus is the one who teaches us so much on it, we can't feign ignorance or conveniently ignore this issue because we don't like to think about it. And I admit this doctrine is very difficult to understand. It's one where all our questions cannot be satisfactorily answered in this lifetime. I have questions about hell that I can't completely find answers to. And I know those much more intelligent and wiser than me have questions that they cannot comprehend. The famous Bible teacher, John Stott, said this on the next slide. He says, Emotionally, I find the concept of hell intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing, I didn't know what this word meant, so I looked it up, it means to sear or to burn. How people can live with this doctrine without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. I mean, it's easy to relate to what he writes. But then he adds this on the next slide. But our emotions are fluctuating, unreliable guide to truth, and must not be exalted to the place of supreme authority in determining it. As a committed evangelical, my question must be, and is not, what does my heart tell me, but what does God's word say? So I hope all of us this morning, though we have questions, though we you know, have, have issues about how, I hope we will echo Stott's sentiment and uphold what God teaches in Scripture, even when it is difficult. We need to resolve to affirm and know the doctrine and reality of hell. The next need we have is the need to feel, the need to feel. In the afterlife, why was Lazarus in heaven and the rich man in hell? Unfortunately, nothing is said in the parable which specifically states the reason. The foremost know that Lazarus wasn't in hell because he was poor, or Lazarus wasn't in heaven because he was poor, nor the rich man was in hell because he was rich. Too many other parts of the scripture, of scripture wouldn't support this. I'm sure there are rich people in heaven just as there are poor people in hell. The only basis a person is saved, as we know, is and his or her relationship with Jesus Christ. And I believe here in this parable, Jesus doesn't state a specific reason to make the contrast between the rich and more rich and poor man more powerful. But we'll be able to clarify some, and to do so, we need to better understand the context for the parable. In Luke 16, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus starts out by telling the parable about the shrewd manager, which I preached on it at the beginning of July. The parable taught about being shrewd in the use of our resources to advance God's kingdom. And though it says in verse 1 of chapter 16, the parable was given primarily to the disciples, if you look at verse 14, it says the Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. 
So then a few verses later, Jesus tells this parable directed to the Pharisees. This parable is not only one of contrast, but it's also one of irony. Because the story played out exactly the opposite of how the Pharisees would have expected it to. Know that the common conviction back then was that for those religious, which would have included the Pharisees who were the religious teachers of the day, the common conviction was that God's favor upon a person was seen in one's material blessings. So if anyone was blessed by God, it truly was the rich man who had so much materially, while the poor man surely was cursed by God to be in such a state. What's more, we see from the parable that the rich man was obviously a Jew who had religious knowledge because in the parable he refers to Abraham as his father, and Abraham in reply doesn't contradict that or discard it. He even calls the rich man his son or his child. So it would not be surprising to learn that the rich man who was Jewish was an active member of the synagogue, was looked upon well in the synagogue because of his obvious blessings from God in the form of material wealth. And we see too that you know Jesus didn't even depict this rich man as being very cruel. He didn't tell Lazarus to get off his property. He didn't have him removed. He didn't treat him particularly harsh. And he just kind of conveniently ignored the person who was lying in front of his gate. So the rich man, one who would have been considered blessed by God physically, one who was a Jew, one of who was probably looked upon as being religious, maybe was even a leader in the synagogue, obviously he was a person we should find in heaven. And poor Lazarus, one who was so cursed by God that he was in this lowly state, there's no way he would make it to heaven. That's what the Pharisees would believe. So they must have been shocked in Jesus' parable when it details the exact opposite of what they expected to happen. Some critics felt it strange that this parable gives a name for the poor man because in all the other parables, no names are ever given. But it's easy to understand why the poor man is named in this parable because Lazarus literally means God helped or God has helped. Jesus is using this parable to teach the Pharisees that though they may believe otherwise, God has not forgotten nor neglected the poor. The problem was, though, that the rich man did, and this was his error. Through this parable, Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees that in spite of all their religious convictions, one thing they neglected was to feel, and I should add, do something for those less fortunate. So the need is to feel for those less fortunate. Though we are indeed saved by faith, one's faith is demonstrated through his or her service to others. It's interesting that when the rich man finds himself in hell, he never argues about why he's there. He doesn't say, God, you must have made a mistake. He doesn't cry out to Abraham, what am I doing here? He seems to recognize the error he's made. He only asks for a bit of comfort, and he asks for Lazarus to warn his brothers. But when Abraham refers to Moses and the prophets as being sufficient, you know, if the rich man lived out these teachings, 
He would have remembered God's teaching through Moses, like the one we find in Deuteronomy 15, verse 7 to 8 and 11, where Moses says, If anyone is poor among you fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and lend to them whatever they need. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed to your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. You see, our, our vertical love for God is measured in our horizontal love to others. First John 3.17 states, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So the question is, can people see the love of God in your life through your fault needs and actions for those less fortunate? You know, we were in Asia, we got to meet up again with someone we had met the previous two years. She was a, an American worker who uh, lives over there and takes care of orphans, local orphans in her home. The orphanage usually gives her the kids that they don't want to take care of because they're too difficult to have too many you know, disabilities. At this year, when we met out with her, she was caring for three children. One was an underdeveloped three-year-old boy whose condition reminded me a lot of you know, baby Hope. And in addition, she also cared for an 11-year-old boy who had severe mental retardation and paralysis. She knew no one would want to adopt this boy because he had so many needs. So last year, she made a decision to adopt him himself, herself. And while we were there, you know, she shared with us recently there was a man who came to visit. He was a local doctor who, who came to her home to do a follow-up visit after taking one of the kids to the hospital. This doctor came to, to do a follow-up visit and ended up staying most of the afternoon to watch and witness how this woman cared for these four children. He shared with her that he didn't understand why she would do something like this. You know, why would she make so many sacrifices to care for these children? The man wasn't a Christian, but she tried to explain to him that God had given her so much love that she shared, that she had to share this love with others. And if you ever meet this woman, you know, it's just so evident how God's love indeed does overflow out of her life into these children. I mean, you can ask any of of former or current team members who've met her. I mean, she's just amazing. amazing. And, you know, maybe in a different form or fashion, you know, do people see the outpouring of God's love as evident in your life? You know, as Jesus tried to teach the Pharisees through this parable to not be like the rich man, to care for the poor, to have a heart for those less fortunate, in the same way, we need to feel and do something for those less fortunate. And this doesn't mean we have to give to every homeless person we see. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that we wait until every Thanksgiving and Christmas to you know, participate in some service project to say we've done our duty for the year. You know, the felt need and action must be driven by God transforming our hearts to care for others. This is how we know that God is working in us. This is how God's love is demonstrated through our, vertic- through our horizontal love towards others.
And then there's one more need I want to talk about. And that is the need to tell. The need to tell. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be able to approach the subject of hell without feeling a deep sense of responsibility to share the gospel with the lost. From the end of the parable, as we see from the rich man, even those in the afterlife wish that someone would go and tell their loved ones about Jesus. The rich man asked Abraham, Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will also, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replies, They have Moses and, and the prophets, referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Let them listen to them. But the rich man retorts, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead to tell, tell them, they will repent. He said to them, They do not listen to Moses and the prophets. They will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. These last few verses speak on the sufficiency and the power of Scripture to save. The reason the rich man's brothers were not saved was not because of a deficiency in the way they received the message. It was a failure on their part to heed to it. In Romans 10, when Paul writes about how people are saved, he says this beginning in verse 14, How can then, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And then he adds in verse 17, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. No mention here of the need for miracles or signs. You know, even at the beginning of Romans, he shares in Romans 1.15, that he is eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome, and he adds in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because that, the gospel is the power of God, that brings salvation to everyone in need, or to everyone who believes, excuse me. So the gospel is the power alone that brings salvation. As we witness to others, as we share the gospel with others, be convinced that the message we share is powerful. Believe that it has the power to transform and to bring salvation to others. You know, you may initially disagree with Abraham's response that even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. But the evidence proves otherwise. <clears throat> you know, a few months after Jesus told this parable, <clears throat> there was a real man named Lazarus who died. And Jesus waited three days after his death before he went to go visit his friend and, the, and his family. And those familiar with the story in John 11 know that after he came, three days later, he performed the miracle and raised Lazarus from the dead. So if you agree with the rich man that this should have convinced the Pharisees, I mean, they should have been you know, convinced from this miracle. But in John 11, after the incident took place, the Pharisees met together. And in verses 47 to 48, they said, What are we accomplishing? Here is a man who performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And then their meeting concluded in verse 53 with this action item. So from that day, that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life.
Instead of being convinced, they wanted to kill him. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 12 and verse 10, it also adds that they wanted to kill Lazarus. Not really a form of repentance. And even at the ultimate sacrifice, when Jesus himself was crucified and rose from the dead, the Pharisees would not believe. And confronted with the resurrection, it says in Matthew 28, they gave the tomb guards a large sum of money, saying, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. When hearts are so hard against the gospel, it's like Abraham said, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Moses and the prophets and the apostles and Jesus' words, scripture itself is sufficient and powerful to change a person and bring about salvation. So believe in the sufficiency of scripture. Believe in the doctrine of hell. And let it motivate you to share the gospel with others. You know, a couple of times during our trip, when we were in the city we were working in, we met some people and, and they questioned, you know, why Millie and I would go to Asia. Those who were familiar with the city we went to asked us, why would we go to this, you know, poorly developed area to teach English when we could have gone to more modern developed areas and presumably done something similar. And to their point, you know, it's not a city one would normally visit. The conditions there are not so comfortable for those who are used to American standards. We don't go there because we love the city. We go there because we love the people we have met there. And we believe they need to hear the gospel message. The people that we have met up with, that we were able to meet up with from previous years, the thought of them being lost for eternity disturbs and really scares me. And I want them to receive the salvation that Jesus obtained through his sacrifice of of himself. This is what motivates Millie and I to go there and look for opportunities to share the gospel with them. We don't want to see them lost for eternity. We want them to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Whom has God placed in your heart? Whom has he motivated you to go and share the gospel with? You know, I don't think anyone particularly likes talking about hell. I certainly don't. And I'm not even sure Jesus did while he was on earth. But realize that in parables like this one, he didn't speak on hell to condemn the Pharisees. He did so out of love to warn them that their religious traditions and convictions that they clung to, it couldn't and it wouldn't save them. In a loving fashion, he was trying to get them to repent so that they wouldn't end up with the same fate as the rich man. So as we share about hell, it doesn't have to be done in a fire and brimstone manner. It can be done in love and with the power of the gospel message. 
So from this parable, let us recognize our need to know and not claim ignorance about hell, our need to feel and take action for those less, towards those less fortunate, and our need to tell others about the gospel so they too can receive this wonderful salvation, this gift of God through Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself so that we could be saved. Let us pray. Father, we do confess that in reading this parable, it is very disturbing. The final person in the end of his life, you know, he was religious. He was probably not a bad person. To find a person like this end up in hell and be tormented and be in anguish. Father, you teach us through this parable that you know we can tell others that this doesn't have to be their fate. You have taught us through this parable that through Jesus Christ, through one rising from the dead, we have salvation. We praise you, Lord, for the salvation that you give us through Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would be motivated to share this with others because we are aware of the reality of life apart from Jesus. We probably sing this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise as we respond in worship. This is 